Today's scripture comes from Esther chapter 1, verses 16 through 22. Then Memucan said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only has Queen Vashti done wrong to the king, but also to all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen will be made known to all women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will rebel against the king's officials, and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be altered that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, vast as it is, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the officials, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, declaring that every man should be master in his own house. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I wonder, has anyone ever asked you to define your core principles? Anyone ever asked you to define your core principles? It's the kind of thing that you might get asked to do at a leadership development course or some kind of spiritual retreat. What are your core values? What are your core principles? I had to do this just a few weeks ago at a clergy education thing that I'm doing. And it's not easy, let me tell you. Or at least it's not easy to just come up with them right on the spot. Another way to think about this question might be, what is so important to you that you would still hold on to it, hold firm to that value, even if doing so cost you dearly? That's a powerful question. What value or principle is so important to you that you would still hold on to it, even if it cost you dearly? Believe it or not, that is the question that's at play in the scripture that Carrie just read. But before we get there, let me take a moment to share with you an example of what I mean. Perhaps some of you are thinking about those core values and principles and something like honesty might come up as a principle, a value that you would hold so dear, so central to who you are and who you want to be in the world. I certainly grew up in a household where honesty was a high, high value if my brother or I screwed up, if we made a mistake, if we disappointed our parents, there was always grace. But if we lied about it on top of screwing up, oh, that was a different story. You did not want to see my mother's face when she found out that you had lied to her. Well, almost 15 years ago, I watched a friend who also held honesty as a very, very high value. I watched him be severely put to the test. 
My friend was on the staff of an air and space museum in central Kansas. Some of you may have been to the Cosmosphere at one time or another. It's a pretty cool place. And it's a museum that was really developed, put on the map by a guy named Max Airy, who grew it from a small planetarium in Hutchinson to a premier museum, one of the best, actually, uh, for space uh, things outside of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And in 2005, after helping the Cosmosphere land on the national map, Airy got a chance to move to Oklahoma City to become the director of an air and space museum there. And my friend took over as interim director after Airy left. And a few months after he left, my friend led the staff in going through an inventory of all of the artifacts that the museum had. And in the course of that inventory, they discovered that quite a few space artifacts were missing. They investigated, and they came to believe that the outgoing director, the man who had built the museum up from nothing, the man who was a legend around town and in the state and in the world of space collecting, the man who had astronauts as personal friends, they came to believe that he had taken some of those artifacts when he left town and then sold them on the private collecting market to make a lot of money. So what was my friend, the new director, to do? His former boss, his mentor, his friend, seemingly had done something illegal and wildly unethical. So should my friend tell the truth and destroy his mentor's reputation and destroy their relationship? And if right now you're thinking the answer seems obvious, I just want to ask you to do a gut check and think about somebody in your life who's been a mentor and an encouragement to you. If you found out information like this about them, how easy would it be for you to pursue the truth? Well, there are plenty of reasons for my friend to just ignore it or move on or, or let the lies and excuses offered up by Max Airy to stand. He would have saved himself a lot of heartache. He would have preserved uh, a man's reputation. He would have kept the cosmosphere out of the headlines if he had done just let it go. But instead, he fell, held fast to honesty to pursue the truth, and it came for him at a very high cost. It wasn't easy. He withstood incredible public pressure from people who refused to believe that Max Airy was capable of such fraud. He withstood the scorn of his mentor and his friend who was just vicious back to him. He withstood a public relations campaign from several former Apollo astronauts who came to Max Airy's defense. It was incredibly stressful and painful for my friend, both professionally and personally, but he pursued the truth. He led his museum in pursuing the truth. He helped law enforcement pursue the truth, and eventually his mentor was convicted and went to prison for several years. My friend did not stay at the Space Museum long after that. His career took a completely different path because of it. So what value is so core to you that you are willing to hold on to it even if it costs you dearly? We start a new sermon series today, looking closely together at the book of Esther. And Esther is one of the few books in the Old Testament that's a, a little novella all to itself. It, it really stands alone as a complete story, like Jonah or like the book of Ruth. I wonder if you have ever read Esther all the way through. Have you ever done that? If not, now is the, well, not right now, but like during this sermon series is the perfect time. In worship, we're only going to be looking at select verses, but the whole book is not that long. You can read it in one sitting. 
So I'd encourage you to do that sometime over the next three weeks. In worship, we're going to be reflecting on all the key parts of the story, but the book, it really deserves to be read in whole. So I encourage you to do that. Now, if you have ever heard a sermon on Esther, which it's possible that you haven't, I'm just going to confess to you, this is the first time I've ever preached on the book of Esther, so there you go. Uh, there's a lot in the Bible, you know, it takes a while to get around to all of it, but we're doing Esther, and so if you have ever heard a sermon on Esther, it might be that the sermon you heard was focused in on that moment where Esther says, perhaps I am here, <coughs> excuse me, perhaps I'm here for such a time as this. That's the most famous line in the book, and we're going to have a sermon on that in a few weeks. But there's a lot more going on in the book than just that one moment. In fact, today we don't talk about Esther at all. Today we're talking about another brave woman who helped pave the way. Now, there are a few things that it's helpful to know about the book of Esther. I just want to give you a little context. The story is set in Persia, so we're not in Israel. We're in Persia, which we would today call probably Iran. And the king in the story is the Persian king, but he has a huge kingdom. It says that his kingdom goes from India to Ethiopia. Think about your world map for a second. This guy is insanely rich, and he's a really big deal. King Ahasuerus is his name, and like most ancient kings, he had a harem. He had lots of women whose sole job it was to please him, but he had one queen, just one queen, and her name was Vashti. Like I said, the, the book of Esther is a novella, and it's one that's got some exaggerated details in it and very clear good guys and bad guys. And it's also a book that forms the center of a holiday, a Jewish holiday called Purim, Purim, which is celebrated in late February or March. And it's certainly, uh, it's centrally this holiday celebrates the saving of the Jewish people from an evil plot. That's a spoiler alert for later in the book. And uh, also their rededication then to the Torah, that the people, after they were saved, they rededicated themselves to the Jewish way of life and the Jewish law. Well, Purim is still celebrated by Jewish people all over the world, and they have a really good time doing it. They often dress up in costumes, they throw lavish parties with lots of food and drink, they give charity to the poor so that they too can celebrate, and people get together and they read the book of Esther out loud. And so it's very festive, right? Imagine people in costumes, and, and when they come, they, they treat the book of Esther sort of like a, um, a murder mystery dinner theater. You ever been to one of those? So people bring noisemakers and, and such, and, and when they read the book together, whenever someone says the villain's name, the crowd boos and whistles and hisses. And then whenever they say hero's name, what do you think they do? They clap, and they cheer, and they, and they get all excited, right? So you get the idea. It's very fun. Purim gatherings are, are fun and festive and a big celebration. The ancient rabbinical text, the Talmud, says that you should drink plenty of wine on Purim, so much so celebrate until you don't know the difference between blessed is Mordecai and cursed is Haman, okay? So have fun on Purim. That's what the book of Esther is about. And it's a fun book, but it also has embedded in it some pretty serious questions, questions of life and death. The book actually starts out with a giant party. Right, so in the, in the beginning, King Ahasuerus, he throws a party for all his officials and courtiers. Government officials from all over his vast kingdom come to this party, and the king uses it to show off all his best stuff. He lays out all his wealth, as a way to remind them how great he is, of course. It's such an amazing party, the book says, that the party lasts for six months. 
187 days, these guys are partying. Six months of drinking and feasting and celebrating how great the king is and his kingdom. And then because that was not enough partying, the king decides to throw an even bigger party for seven more days and invite all the men who lived inside the walls of his capital city. Rich or poor didn't matter. The king had him come to the palace, and they had a giant party. And he let the wine flow freely. Every man got to have as much as he could drink. Scripture says there were no limits. So you can imagine, it was debauchery. On the seventh day, then, of that massive party for the whole city, the king, by now in a really good mood, after having six months and one week of great food and wine, he decided he wants to show off one more thing and that is his queen. So he orders Vashti to come. He says, come to him wearing her royal crown. She was a gorgeous woman, and he wanted to show her off. At first, this might not sound so bad to us, inviting his wife to the party, but the king and the queen lived in a world where men and women had completely separate lives. And what the king is doing, most commentators agree, is ordering Vashti to come to the party of all these men who've been drinking and partying for seven days, wearing her crown and only her crown, and dance before this gathering of drunk men. See, she was just one more object for him in his vast collection of riches. Along with his gold goblets and his fancy curtains, here was his beautiful queen. He wanted her to entertain them, to dance naked as the grand finale to his giant party. And Vashti says no. She says no, she won't come. She will not be his object. She will not be his prize on display for all the officials and the men of the town to say she says no, and it costs her everything. Everything. Because the king, as you might expect, gets mad. He doesn't say self-reflectively, I wonder why she said no. Maybe I should think about this and what this felt like for her to get invited that way. No, no, no. He gets mad and he is an officials, and his officials immediately get together and they get worried that Vashti's refusal is going to spread and that women all over the kingdom would start thinking for themselves. And they would start refusing what their husbands ordered them to do, and it would be disastrous. So they make an example out of Vashti. They dethrone her. They remove her as queen because of this one simple no. And then they send out a decree to the whole vast kingdom about what was happening to the queen, and they do that to reinforce that husbands should rule over their own houses. They send it out everywhere in every language, and the king is very pleased with himself. And we never hear about Vashti again. She said no, and she lost her place, lost her privilege, lost her power. And that's what makes an opening for Esther to become queen. Now, too often in reading the book of Esther, Vashti and Esther are kind of set up against each other. Vashti is the bad queen, Esther is the good queen. Vashti says no, Esther says yes. But I would propose to you that instead the two women are more alike than they are different. That both of them actually dare to be independent and bold. Both of them challenge the men around them when that was far from encouraged or accepted in their world. Now Vashti, she paid a dear price for the way she challenged the status quo. 
And we might expect after reading that, that Esther, the replacement queen, well, she better just be meek and mild and obedient above everything else. But that is not what Esther does. That's not her story. Instead, we'll watch Esther walk very carefully this line of accomplishing what she does in the world, in this world where women can be dismissed just in an instant for challenging the men in their lives. But Esther still does it. She challenges the men around her and she ends up saving her people, but she does it only by walking through a door that Vashti opened because of her bravery. What values are you willing to hold on to even if it costs you dearly? Today we remembered our saints, these dear ones now gone who continue to inspire us and encourage us and love us. I wonder as we look at their lives, as we look at the lives of the saints in our own families, what would we name as their core values? What would we say they valued above all else? What, to what did they hold most tightly? As we remember and give thanks for their lives, what can we see as their core principles, the things that they hold most dear? How does that inspire us? Or maybe we could think about core values as a lens as we approach the election this week. Once we've named for ourselves our core values and our principles, Maybe then we can look at the candidates and, and say, am I voting in accordance with these most deeply held values and principles? And I understand that might be a bit of a challenge because it's possible that no candidate on the ballot lines up perfectly with what you would name as your core values. But ask yourself, what in a candidate's platform resonates with the things that you hold most dear? I wonder if we framed our choices around that instead of just how much we hate the other candidate if it might make a shift in our political conversation. Now, the book of Esther is a little funny in that it never mentions the name of God. The name of God does not appear in the entire book. But I don't think that that means God's not in it. Far from it. It just means that we have to take the step to tie it explicitly to our faith. And today what I'd suggest is the convictions that you've been thinking about the core values that we can name, that those are gifts that are given to us by God. And moreover, the strength that it takes to follow through on those convictions, especially when the road gets rockiest, that that's a grace granted to us by God. We're capable of holding tight to our core values, even when the world does not reward us for it, because we find ourselves ultimately rooted and grounded in God's love and grace. And whatever can be taken away from us, because we hold tight to those core principles, it cannot be compared to what God has given us that can never be taken away. This week, my encouragement to you is that you take a moment to actually write down two or three things that you would name as core values. Reflect on where you see them in scripture, or where you find them in the teachings of Jesus. I mean, put them down on paper. Just take a few minutes to do that. Write them down as a spiritual exercise in naming what it is you hold most dear. You might share them with a family member or a friend if you want. But after you write them down, say a, a prayer of thanks to God and ask God for the courage to live out those values in all that you do. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>